0: Thanks, worship team. Well, it's great to be back with you um, after taking a few days uh, to get away. A few days last weekend, we had a nice time visiting some family in Orange County and uh, got to see some old friends, uh, old friends and some new babies we'd never seen or met before. It's fun to uh, see that. Uh, as well, and uh, went to Disneyland a couple days. That was fun. haven't been there in ages, but lots of fun to get there. And we learned that uh, after you get going on a ride, and you're buckled in, you get going, it's too late to say, I changed my mind. If you were already started, the ride is going. Uh, it's too late to say that. Uh, appreciate Tony, Freitas stepping in last week to preach for us. I heard he brought a, a great message on the gospel commission, gospel commandment, blending those two together. So I appreciate him Allowing that, me that time to get away, my family. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at, if you remember back as we started Second Timothy, three helps that God has given us in the church to produce sincere, faithful, courageous followers of Jesus. If you remember that, it was a mentor we need in our life. We need a, a mother with those spiritual examples and then that mission that we're on together. Well, this morning, we're going to head back in and deeper into Second Timothy If you remember, it's a heartfelt, emotional, pastoral um, letter. The last letter written by Paul, the last thing probably he wrote before his actual death now. His actual death. And he's writing from a dungeon to his dear companion, his dear friend Timothy in the faith. Timothy, a young pastor, you remember the recipient of this letter, a young pastor, probably a timid man. Maybe a fearful man, but certainly facing pressure in Ephesus uh, for his commitment to the gospel as a pastor. Immense pressure in this church as he led. That's the letter. That's the context. That's the recipient as we get back in today to our, mes- our, our series, 2 Timothy, Enduring for the Gospel. I was standing in line at the grocery store, um, the local grocery store, uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was the second in line as I began to overhear this conversation that was taking place between the cashier and the person in front of me. You've probably done that before, and some of the cashiers love to have conversations. And, uh, was talk- the cashier was talking with the customer about how her life, the cashier's life, um, she was struggling. It had been difficult lately. Um, she'd been struggling, and, and she used the phrases, I've just been looking for something in my life. I don't know what that is. And I ha- just overheard, and I'm like, huh. started thinking about that conversations I was next in line there waiting to go forward, I began to think in my head she needs Jesus, right? She needs Jesus, and immediately I began to get timid, a bit nervous. I thought, you know, I I, I couldn't say anything. She wouldn't want to hear anything, you know, what I might have to offer. And she began to continue to unpack her life to this lady. And as cashiers do uh, from time to time, they have a, they have this ability to keep the conversation going from the person there to the next one, right? So they just go, have a good day. You know, I was just in my life, you know, I was like, so that's what happened. (laughs) I just stepped up and I was like, she knew I'd probably been listening, so she just kept the conversation going with me. And she said, uh, as I moved up, I looked at her and I said to her, how are you? And she responded, you know, I've been feeling a little bit stuck lately. And I was like, ugh, I'm there. I just need something to get unstuck, she said. Uh Uh-oh, right? Well, I, I took a little risk and I said, well... There's nothing more freeing than the gospel of Jesus. I'm the pastor of Bethany Church. You should come. And she responded, that's okay. I'm a witch. And I said, well, the invite goes out to everyone. My hands were clammy, right? My heart was beating rapidly, and I really didn't do anything that profound. I didn't even actually share the gospel with her, but man... Those emotions running through my heart, the, the sweaty palms, uh, as I knew a potential opportunity and a need was there, as I thought, I might be asked to speak up for Jesus. You had those situations? You faced that dilemma before? I know you have that inner dialogue. They're not going to want to hear this. There's no way they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna, it's going to make sense to them well, even as a witch, she didn't slap me and send me out of the store, right? She said, well, you know, she was polite, right? There's a natural tendency, I think, in us to be maybe ashamed a bit or fearful of the gospel and of speaking uh, Jesus' name. Sometimes this shame and fear can even tempt us to tweak or hide the gospel or keep to ourselves what we know would be the answer to someone's life. This morning, Paul exhorts us through the gospel now To guard the gospel that's been entrusted to us. We're going to make a three-step progression this morning. From a problem, which I've just addressed a little bit, that fear and shame at the gospel, to a solution, to finally an exhortation to us this morning. But first, the challenge we're going to look at. The problem that I just described, the difficulty uh, of a life of following Christ, that there is a temptation to be ashamed of and fear of Suffering for the Gospel. Hopefully you've got that outline open in front of you and your text open as we jump in today. As we look at the problem, the dilemma, that there's that temptation to be ashamed of and fear of suffering for the Gospel. Or maybe not even suffering, but just saying Jesus' name in a grocery store line. Second Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse 8 with me as Paul says this to Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but Sharon, suffering for the gospel by the power of God. For Paul to mention this, 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 this uh, potential to be ashamed or, or fear, for Paul to have mentioned this, Timothy must have felt this. He probably wouldn't address something that he didn't know Timothy uh, didn't need to hear. Timothy must have felt this. He was tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, and maybe even ashamed of Paul. As Paul said, don't be ashamed of me, who's now in prison for it. Timothy felt this. I felt this. I know you feel this too. But here's the thing. Paul felt it as well. Not just Timothy. Paul, the Apostle Paul, someone who had seen the risen Lord now, felt this temptation as well. As he said in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. I don't think Paul would have written this. When he wrote this, he wasn't ashamed. But I don't think he would have had to write this down himself as well if he was not at a time ashamed of it. And we know he was because he was persecuting the church at one time. So what is Paul urging Timothy to do here? To not be ashamed of the Gospel, but to suffer for it. To not be ashamed of the Gospel, but even be willing to suffer for it. That's a big calling. It might even be a frightening calling. You know, we talk about, we do talk about the gospel a lot here at Bethany Church. We use that term even a lot, the gospel. But you can actually talk a lot about the gospel, or say that word gospel, and never actually get to speaking the name of Jesus. A preacher can do that. Just use the word gospel Many times, but not get to even a place of speaking about, about the gospel. What is it? Or about Jesus, the Savior of that gospel. And never speak of salvation. There's not a name around today, if you think about it. Any other name. You kind of know where I'm going. to see somebody shaking your head. There's not a name around today that instantly can kind of change a conversation, right? Or bring more attention than the name of Jesus. Just saying that name. I knew it in that grocery store line. I could see it on her face. I could tell just by saying the name Jesus, everything changed in that moment. Our interaction completely changed. Or just yesterday, we were driving on the freeway coming north on I 5, and I saw a sign that obviously uh, had said, Jesus Saves, over the top of it, spray painted in black, right? Jesus Saves. Covered up and sprayed, painted over. Cover up that name. Shame at that name. Black out that name. But a disciple now, a follower of Jesus Christ, is one, as, as Paul said here in verse 8, that speaks about the testimony, that speaks about who Jesus is. To be a gospel centered disciple, to be a, a disciple who loves the gospel, we have to say the name Jesus. You have to say the name jesus you have to say it let me try something when you say say to somebody you know what what do you think of jesus you ask that to somebody what do you think of jesus there are those who are pretty bold at times with this maybe we say they have a gift of evangelism but paul knows there's a temptation for us for timothy for himself to be embarrassed at jesus's name to be embarrassed at jesus's name but also Jesus' people. Did you catch that? He said to them, don't be embarrassed of me either. He said, don't be ashamed of me either, Timothy. You know, I, I'm in jail for the gospel. I'm in chains, probably facing the end of my life. Don't be embarrassed about me either. All of us have that crazy friend, don't we? You go out with them. You're like, you've been around him. I know she's going to bring up Jesus with this person. It is just going to get so weird. It's going to get so awkward. I know it. I just know it. They're going to get into that conversation. And you're standing there with your friend. You're like, again? Okay, here we go. Let's see where this one kind of goes, right? Or even put it more simply, how, how have you felt before? I know we felt this, that strange feeling when you bow your head in a restaurant to pray. Who's looking at me right now? What do they think about these people over there? Oh, there's some of those, you know. You felt that, I know. The temptation is there for all of us to be afraid of speaking about Jesus or telling what he's done or be, to be embarrassed by his people, right? It's there. But it's a dangerous temptation. And it's actually a frightful one. Look at Jesus' words. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It's not just something to take lightly, uh, uh, Jesus says. It's not something to pass over and go, well, it's just kind of the way I'm wired, baby, right? Jesus says, to be ashamed of him will find yourself on the other end of be- him being ashamed of you on that day, on that final day. And so if that's a temptation for all of us, we need a solution, don't we? Because I know we all face this. I know at time from time we all struggle with this. So if there's a, solution, a problem, we need a solution to, to how one could take a risk, even sit in prison for the gospel as Paul is. The end of verse 8, did you see it there? The power of God. The power of God. That's the answer. The power of God. We can't do this alone. In and of ourself, it's natural to feel that timidity. What we speak and, and, and what we're told to speak about, whom we're told to speak about, that we're told to share, is, is actually foolishness to the world. Did you know that? Look at First 1 Corinthians 1.18 popping up there. For the word of the cross is folly or or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, what is it? It's the power of God, right? It's the power of God. So if the cross is foolishness to the world, then what should we expect to be those who follow the way of the cross and cling to the cross that we be thought of as foolish too? Foolish too. But by clinging to the cross, there's strength. And that is the power of God. It's the answer, actually, that you and I need to that problem, to that anxiety, to that timidity, to that uncertainty, or maybe that apathy you even feel today. That's it. It's the cross. It, it, it's the gospel itself. It's the news of Jesus Christ. So if we move from that first uh, point in our progression today, to the problem, we move to the answer. The gospel is news worth living and dying for. The gospel is news worth living and dying for. Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of the name of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of me, Paul. He says, remember the testimony. Remember the testimony. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me. Chapter 1. Uh, by, by the power of God, he says, and then in verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul in these two short little verses there, verses 9 and 10, in these two compact little verses, gives us the testimony. He says, Don't be ashamed of the testimony. He gives us the testimony in verses 9 and 10. The testimony of Jesus. He gives us a gospel exclamation now. Or explanation, you might say. And by doing so, he wants to rid Timothy's heart of fear. He wants to rid your heart of fear. He wants to rid my heart of that anxiety, that timidity that I felt in line at the grocery store, or even a little bit of anxiety you feel when you bow your head to pray in a restaurant. The gospel explanation here, the exhortation. I grew up uh, in Florida for about five, about five years of my life, lived there in Florida. If you've ever been down there, you know it's, it's hot, right? It's humid, full of bugs. Bugs, bugs, and more bugs. Yeah. And I remember uh, being in a, in a few homes, actually, not mine, um, a few homes at, where they just did not do so great at spraying for cockroaches. I remember that. Spending the night at a friend's house, and it was late and dark, and it was about 9 o'clock, and you want to go into the kitchen to get a snack, And you go in the kitchen light and you flip that light on and it was like a party was happening in there. It was like, yeah. Those nasty roaches would scatter. you just see them go. You're like, oh, they're banished by the light that came on. That's what Paul is doing here. Those nasty little cockroaches. Those bugs of fear, of shame, of timidity. Paul's flipping on the light. He's turning on the light. He's shining the truth on them. He's flipping on the kitchen life and he's pouring God's grace over Timothy to take those little bugs and, and scare them away, to get them out of there. He's turning on a ray of light. That's what he's doing. Here's that ray of light. Here's the first thing we see in those little, that gospel explanation. Here it is. It's that God saves and calls us By his grace, it's the first thing Paul wanted Timothy to see in us, too, From these verses. Do you know one of the greatest ways we combat feelings is with truth? That's the flipping on the light. That's what Paul's doing here. One of the greatest ways you and I combat our feelings is with truth. And Paul is really just reminding Timothy of what he already knows and believes. But we have to be, don't we? It's so easy to sit in the dark, right? When we even know the light, Paul's reminding him that God is the one who saves. That, Timothy, God saved you, not you yourself. That God is the one who saves us. It's a message that we'll see here is so beautiful, so all-encompassing, so secure that it makes your life worth living for this message, And maybe even, as Paul did, dying for it. When Paul thinks of the gospel, anytime Paul goes to the gospel, when Paul thinks of Jesus Christ, his mind immediately goes to God's grand plan of salvation, which is what we get here. We get a big picture of God's salvation. He says to Timothy, He saved you. He called you, Paul says to Timothy, to a holy life. And He'll make you holy. Paul's telling him. God will do this, Paul's saying. It's called sovereign grace. It's called that God does a work. That God saves his people. God rescues sinners. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's saying. It's our only hope. And in fact, it is the only thing, it is the thing, I would say, that makes Christianity different from every other religion. Every other one. We can't clean ourselves up enough to be in God's presence. And if you take a look and some time exploring other religions of the world, that is basically the underlying message of each and every one of those. Their teachers come to tell you how to live to find your way back to God. That's not what Paul is saying here. That's not what the gospel is. That's our only hope, is what we have here before us, that we can't clean ourselves up enough to be in God's presence. We can't rid our own life of the sin, the cockroaches, right? And God doesn't owe us anything. So what Paul's saying is here that he gave us everything. Everything. He gave us everything. Here's the words again. Listen to Him. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Grace. He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's not a mixture. It's not a mixture of a bit of my goodness and God kind of getting me halfway there. That'd be like oil to water in the gospel. It really is. No, it's all of grace. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. That's the message, that's really the only message that can rid your life of fear is that you're saved by grace alone. You're saved by the work of God alone. His purposes, Paul says, and grace. God's the one flipping that switch. God's the one flipping on a light in your heart. God is the one shining his truth right on you. On my own, you might be able to say this too, on my own, I think I would have been probably happy to sit with the roaches. And not even really realize, or sit in the dark at least, Right? until God flipped on the light, his grace and mercy. That's grace, not works. God's purpose, he says. Paul says it in Romans 11. Take a look. He says, but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace, Paul says. What's Paul saying there? Is that grace? Your salvation, it's grace. It's not accompanied by anything else. It's a gift of God to you. It's a free gift given out generously to you. And he gave it. Did you see that there? He gave it to you before time began? What in the world does Paul mean? Before the ages began, Paul writes. Before the ages began. Here's in some way what that means. If you trusted Christ today, if you're following Christ today, it means that before the ages began, in some way God placed his saving love on you. the ages began before you were even born the scripture is saying nothing else there that god placed his love on you before the ages began that's enormous that's that's mind-blowing that's big that's a big god the enormity of god and his grace let's think about it a minute what could combat fear now and that shame we're talking about as we're talking about the answer the solution. What could combat fear and shame at at Jesus and the cross more than thinking that God has set his heart on you before time began? And that Jesus came now to earth to work that out and came into time and space to work out what God had already started in eternity for you. That's big. That's bold. I mean, if your salvation began in eternity, do you have anything to fear going forward? nothing nothing that's like thinking in a, an olympic marathon runner would train and train for 20 years and be ready and be in first place and be five minutes out in front of the pack and get to the finish line and sit down and go i quit right that's ridiculous they, they would never do that they would never do that but same thing what god started in eternity he will complete in your life all the way to the finish line and on through he will he will how do we know? How do we know? We know because the second part of this verse is here, because Jesus brings life, we're going to see. And Jesus brings light. That's how we know that Jesus brings life and light. Verse 10 uses this word, immortality. Immortality. That means never dying again, uh, living forever, going on and on. Immortality a big word, but it really means that. Living forever. There has been, and rightfully so, a lot of talk about death this week, hasn't there? A lot. A lot. The heinous evil, as we said earlier, reared its ugly head in Las Vegas. Maybe you saw images or video footage this past week mowing through the web pages and watching the news on tv and there's this overwhelming sense and there has been this grief that this senseless now senseless loss of precious life human beings made in god's image and we've all been as i said it's normal we've all been asking why it's normal to ask why you're made in god's image I'm made in God's image, which means you're a moral creature. We think in those categories even of right and wrong. And we're, 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 we're rational creatures because we're made in God's image, which means we think through things, and we love answers, don't we? So we, we always ask, why? Everybody asks why. The news media asks why. The first responders ask why. The detectives ask why. The, the victims ask why. We who watch from afar ask, why? Why? And it's tragic, and we ask why, because God meant for all of us to live forever in the beginning. He meant for all of us to live forever, and so there's some little tinge and little pain in our heart where we wince and we just know this isn't how it was meant to be. We were meant to live forever from the garden. That's what God meant. But sin is broken into this world And it's never more clear than when you see something like that. And now we all die. We all die. I do not know, I do not know why some of us die too early. Or some of us die tragically. I don't know that. The apostles even asked Jesus the same question. Why did they die? Why did they die? Or I don't know why some of us live really long lives. But I do know this. We all die. We all die. But I also know this. Jesus abolished death. Jesus abolished death. Jesus came to destroy death. He abolished death, the verse says. We read that. He abolished death. He died for sinners on the cross. Too early, right? He's a young guy. He died for sinners on the cross tragically, on a cross. The most shameful death there is. But he burst from the tomb, didn't he? He burst from that tomb. He wasn't even there. Where is he? Where is he? He burst from that tomb. Here's what that means. And that's how we know. That the very worst thing that could happen to you would be your death or an untimely death, or a tragic death. The very worst thing that can happen to you is the best thing that can happen to you. What do I mean by that? It doesn't mean we hasten it, or we look for it. But the worst thing that can happen to you is the best thing that can happen to you. Here's what that means. Charles Spurgeon, this preacher, said that Jesus Christ, by his resurrection, he turned the tomb into just a bed. And he turned dying into just waking up for the Christian. Think about that. What a great image! Jesus Christ, by rising from the dead, turned death just or dying into just a bed, or death into a bed, and dying into just waking up, just waking up. If you thought that kitchen light was just flicked on when you began to believe in Jesus, wait till you go to sleep and wake up in His presence. Right? That's what's going to happen. You will wake up as if from the best refreshing night of sleep you have ever had. Right? That you've ever had, except that Jesus will be standing there right in front of you, too. Think about that. The worst thing that could happen to you is in some ways the best thing. The best thing. Immortality will be yours at that moment. And it really already is. That's, that's, that's the security of the gospel. That's the big picture that what he started in, in time past, he will finish In eternity, you'll wake up with Him because He called you by grace, we just read. You're being transformed and you're secure now by grace. And you'll see His face someday, forever and eternity, by grace. By grace. Not based on works. Not based on your record. Alive, forever, immortality, it says. Not one of us. Not one of us in this room. It's sobering. Events of last Sunday even make you think that way. And I think it's right. Not one of us in this room is guaranteed tomorrow. Nobody. Nobody. But I can guarantee you eternity because of Jesus Christ. Because Christ abolished death. You can have that guarantee. And you look at the events from last weekend, Las Vegas last weekend, and I will say this is the only message of hope in the face of that kind of evil. There's no other hope. Evil that could bring death at any moment. There's no other message that gives that security that even if God was to call me home today, I'm there with him forever. Even if he was to say, too early to the eyes of everyone else, I'm with him forever. Even if he was to say, it's going to be tragic, I'm with him forever. What other message would give you hope to live today? It's the reason Timothy can be bold. It's the reason Paul... Suffers in prison, verse 12 says, it's the reason you and I we move to our final exhortation now. If we believe this, we're called to be gospel caretakers. If that message is this important, that vital, the only hope for this dying world, we need to be gospel caretakers. It's the exhortation for us today here at Bethany Church to be gospel caretakers, caretakers of the gospel. When I hear that word, I think of of somebody watching over, caring for something, uh, pouring into it, feeding it. The follower of Christ, you've been passed that baton. You see there, It's been passed off to you by someone else, by an act of God in your heart. You've been passed that baton like you see in our, our image. You've been given, I've been given. It's a priceless gift. It's an absolutely priceless gift a message, a Savior, a person. So we need to take care of it. We need to take care of it. Watch over it. Protect it, as Paul even says in these final verses. What does that look like? What does that look like? Take a look down at the verses. Just glance at it. I'm not going to read through the rest of the passage, but we left off in uh, verses 11. As you kind of look at those verses there and glance at what Paul is saying to Timothy? What does that look like? In? Well, here's the first one. We're exhorted to speak it. We're exhorted exhorted to speak it. Or speak of, of, of him. You might write as well in your notes there. Verse 11 says that. I'm going to read a few of them, but not all of them. Verse 11 says, for which I was appointed, that's Paul, a preacher, uh, an apostle, and, and a teacher. He was appointed to this task. To speak it. To speak it. I want everybody to do something for me. It's a little weird, but we're going to do it because it's just a good thing to do exercises together sometimes. I want us to just say the name of Jesus together. Can we do that? So I'll, here's what i do. I'll count to three, and then we'll say Jesus together. Can we do that? It's kind of weird, but it's just good to do it sometimes and actually use your body and make yourself do it, okay? One, two, three. Jesus. Well, that was really good. I was not expecting that. Let's do it one more time. One, two, three. Jesus. We're called to speak. The Apostle Paul, it says, he was appointed to preach and teach. And you think, well, maybe I won't ever stand in front of a group like this or in a Sunday school class or a children's Sunday school class and, and teach a message, but you can say the name of Jesus. You just did. I heard you. So now I know. We can say the name of Jesus. You can speak, too, about the gospel. You have that same spirit that Paul had, Timothy had, You have that same spirit, and you know the same gospel, you you, you can speak it. One of our questions in our life groups this week is you're going to, as a group, try to come up with like a compact two or three sentence explanation of what is the gospel, okay? So we just said Jesus, but in our life groups, we're going to unpack that and brainstorm together, try to come up with a two or three sentences of what is the gospel? If somebody were to ask me, what is it? What do you believe? We're called to speak it. But Paul tells Timothy, too, to guard it. To guard it. Just like that sign I saw where Christ's name was scribbled off of that sign or or spray-painted over, each generation has to make sure they guard the gospel, guard the truth. Look at verses 12 uh, to 14. This is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know who I have believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard, there's that word, guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So he exhorts Timothy. Follow the pattern of the sound words you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. How do we do that? How do we guard the truth? What are we guarding? The verses say there, the pattern of sound words, the precious deposit it's called. Every designer now, every builder, maybe you've designed something before, or every mom trying to get her kids from point toddlers from point A to point B, right, comes up with a good plan, a sketch, a design, right? You get the sippy cups, I'll get the diapers, you get them in the car, ready, go, right, your plan. Or, Or an architect who makes a plan and draws things out. Everybody does that. Paul's saying here, there's a detailed plan. There's a sketch, these sound words. There's a design and a pattern. And if you know him, you must know how he saved you. That's the design. That's the sound words. That's why we talk about the gospel a lot, because that is what God designed, not you. He's the grand architect. He's the one who's designed it. He's the one who chose how to save this world. But there is a design. There is a way it happens. All that he saved, he saved on the cross. All that he gives life to, he gives life to through repentance and faith. That's a real simple design. But that it is, it's designed. The temptation, then, must be to change it if Paul is to say, guard those sound words. There must be a temptation residing in the church or in us maybe as individuals to to just change it a a little bit or to be ashamed of it or to be fearful to say that Jesus Christ is the only way. Right? No one else. So Paul says, be watchful. Guard it. Like a bag of gold, like a a full bank account, guard it. But not to hoard to share. That's our final one. Cultivate it. Cultivate it. You see that strange name there at the end? He says, Onesiphorus. I should, I should have us say that one real fast, three times out loud. Onesiphorus, right? Onesiphorus shows up here at the end. Take your mind back real quick. Where's Paul? He sits disgraced in a jail, chained up, mocked for giving up his prestige. Uh, the, to wander around and speak this name of Jesus that he did his whole life. He's mocked, he's in jail, he's changed. And along comes this man, Onesiphorus, who is not ashamed of Paul. In fact, he's so not ashamed of Paul that he searches all through Rome to find him hidden in this dungeon somewhere. He's not ashamed of the apostle, Paul says, in those final verses. And what does he do? He comes along and he refreshes Paul. Maybe it was by his love, by his words of encouragement, by his prayer. Maybe they sang a song together through the bars. Maybe he gave him some food. I don't know what he did, but Paul described it as being refreshed, refreshed. He cultivated the gospel. He not only guarded, but he took care of it. He wasn't ashamed of God's man. He tracked him down, and he cared for God's man. He cultivated the gospel to help it grow. In this case, by taking care of his own, by God's own. So here's the question. How can you cultivate the gospel here? How can you cultivate the gospel just in your own life to make sure you know it and, and are not ashamed of it and, and know how to speak it and, and know what it means, how to live in light of that truth so that you cultivate it and take it, care of it in your own personal life? But how about here? Opportunities here. There's, there's a million of them. It could be something as simple as a smile to somebody on a Sunday morning who's down or a handshake, or a life group, or a Bible study, or those countless acts of love and service that have gone on in this congregation for decades that maybe nobody will ever know of. You can cultivate the gospel, stir it up, care for it. That's how. That's how. We speak it. We guard it. We cultivate it. But to the point of suffering, Paul always goes back there, doesn't he? You're like, Paul, if you just stop there. But he likes to take it to the very the next step. All right, I can maybe work through some timidity in a grocery store line. But to suffer for it, Paul? To sit in jail with joy? That was Philippians, that's second Timothy. How do we do that? How did Paul do that? How did Timothy do that? How did Annesaphorus do it? He could have been grabbed too and thrown in, probably. Did you see verse 12 there? He said he suffered. He said he's not ashamed because he says these words, I know who I believe. I know who I have believed. So he believes, but he knows. The gospel has been cultivated at the deepest level in the apostle Paul's heart. That's the answer. He gave it to us now. He said, I know the one I believed in. This table here today, That's what this table does. It refreshes us. Refreshes us. It's a cultivating, really. It's a cultivating of the gospel. Uh, It's a guarding of the gospel. Actually, that's a speaking of the gospel there, too, as you see the elements and we talk about them. It's all of those things. It refreshes us today as we freshly embrace it as one who believes and knows the one we believe in. As we come to this table today, The table of Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper, the Apostle says, is reserved for those who know Jesus Christ. So if you do not know Jesus Christ, what I'd love for you to do today is think about it. Contemplate it. Even think in terms of your life could end tomorrow. There's no guarantees. But there is guarantees in the gospel of Jesus and what he's done. Let the elements pass by. No one's going to be judging you or looking down the aisle. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is a refreshment time for us. It's a refreshment for us as we take of the, the juice and the bread together. As I said, our kids are going to be coming back in at this time just to be part of this today. Their message today was on the Last Supper. And so we thought it would be good to invite them back in today. They don't have to take it. In fact, as parents, there's, I would encourage some certainty of a confession and, and a conversion before they even do. Um, but they're here today to, to be present, to watch us do this. to so maybe ask the question, and see the connection to their lesson. Oh, that's why they do that. Or that's what that means today, as they come back in. But as they're coming in, here's what I want all of us to do. Take a breath. Take a moment of silence. Take those fears. Take that timidity. Take those sins freshly to the cross. Let's do that quietly now as our worship team comes back up.